Job chapter 1 and verse 6 is where we turn this morning. We go from a rather timeless presentation of who Job is as a person to a particular event. And this happens in all great stories. And I'm not saying that this is just a story like, like uh, whatever you can think of. Uh, but this is a, a narrative, an epic narrative that follows the, the, the different developments that, that make up a good story, a good a compelling drama. You go from a guy who seems to have it all together, just seems to be wonderful, and he is wonderful, blameless and upright, fearing the Lord, turning away from evil. Excellent. He is wealthy. He's got a beautiful family. Well, it doesn't say he has a beautiful family. It says he has a lot of kids, which we kind of translate to that's good. Uh, he is notable. He is the greatest of all the men of the East. I mean, he is a, a reputable person. But then we have a problem. And from all that wonderful things, even the pattern of his behavior, the pattern of his interceding on behalf of his kids, we we saw in verse 5, there was a day that came that really changed the course of history, uh, both for Job and for us, because it presents to us a whole series of events and dynamics and context for our living and trusting and living before the Lord and finding him as our sufficient sovereign over all. Let me read the text, beginning at verse 6 through 12, and then we'll look at it a little bit more carefully. Verse 6 says, Now it was the day that the sons of God came to stand before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. And Yahweh said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Then Yahweh said to Satan, Have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth blameless and upright man, fearing the Lord, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear God without cause? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But send forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, All that he has is in your hand, only do not send forth your hand toward him. A rather dramatic telling of an event in the presence of the Lord. This is something that Job was not privy to. He did not know any of this stuff. This is unknown to him. It's kind of like when you have benefit of reading from a narrator, a a narrator from a a tale or or hear kind of the voiceover kind of explaining the story where the characters in the story don't know all that, all the behind the scenes, all the from the other people's perspective. Job just knows what he's experienced. Job knows what he can see and feel, touch, taste, all these things on earth. And you'll see as that goes forward, when he's addressing the Lord in his various uh, speeches and so forth, and he has the response, none of them know what transpired in these verses. They're not aware of it. Eliphaz didn't know. Bildad didn't know. Uh, um, Zophar didn't know these things. Job certainly didn't know. What went on? What was this day? And how did that even play out? And so what we see helps us to understand when, when Job is responding in the way he does, he's responding out of the grief of his heart. I mean, he, as, as Satan said, touch everything he has and he'll curse you to your face. He was touched, not in a, you know, he touched me kind of a sense. He was stricken. He was brought much low in his life. And so he responds out of the intense suffering, the intense grief that he had from his perspective from the hand of God. 
It says there was a day. Just as there was a man, verse 1 of chapter 1 says there was a man, now there was a day. And this puts a, brings us right to a, a climax, not an ultimate climax, we'll see that later, but this is a, a, a point of, of moving forward this narrative uh, from everything's going fine and now what's going to happen? There was a day that the sons of God came to stand before Yahweh. Now, this is something that shows a, a fateful day. It, it, again, it influences the rest of the narrative. Who are these sons of God? And was there an appointed day? Was there you know, an annual business meeting or a weekly uh, staff meeting? Or, or what was this? Well, first of all, sons of God presented here is a term used uh, th- throughout Scripture in various shapes and forms. In fact, that just the, the phrase sons of or son of doesn't always indicate biological descent. In other words, they're not children uh, biologically as if God is the only one who lives. There's God and there's everything else, right? These are created beings, but they are so closely associated with God that they are called sons of God. They are characterized by their participation, if you don't mind, in the king's realm, in the king's court, and so they are called the sons of God. This word, this phrase rather, can refer to a divine council. You could read Psalm 82, Psalm 89, speaking about God in his heavenly court, and he has these attendants around him, and they are ministering servants, many of them. Uh, Hebrews speaks about those ministering servants sent to uh, render aid to those who will inherit salvation. But these seems also these sons of God seem also to include Satan, the Satan. And so we thought, well, what's he doing there? How, how dare he be part of this? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. But these sons of God have have a special relationship with God. They are sons of the Mighty One. They ascribe glory and strength to Him. Psalm uh, 29 and verse 1 says, they are, uh, they are the ones who compose the Lord's court. They are the ones who do His bidding, do His will. Do they give counsel to Him? No. In fact, you you see all throughout this, this passage and then the corresponding one in chapter 2, the heavenly court, that it's the Lord who's directing the conversation. He's the one who asks for the reports. He's the one who asks the questions. And just people respond to him. Well, not people, the, the sons of, of God. You know, there's one place, several places where the sons of God relates to human beings. One of the most notable ones is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Peacemaking is one of, that, one of those duties, one of those characteristics that God specializes in. And those who specialize in peacemaking are right in line with him, can be called, therefore, sons of God. Well, Satan is there amidst among them, it says. And the question is, was he an intruder? Did he come? Is it a surprise? Did it kind of, well, nobody expected him to come. Who? What's he doing here? Because it says Satan also came. Was he outside of the sons of God? Or is he more likely part of it? He is more likely part of it, if you don't mind my saying. He is one who had the ambition, we can read about in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, and we may reference that here in a little bit, where he had the ambition not just to be in that heavenly court, but to be the one on the throne. I will make my throne in, in all these places. Get God out of the picture, and I'm going to be that one. Right now, he's not that. He is a created being. He is not equal to God. He's not somehow God's um, uh, enemy in, in an equal, equal regard. He is a created being, a lesser being. He, he is subjugated to God's will, God's purpose, God's permission. He has to ask permission, even this, in this regard, for it to touch uh, Job in his life. 
God is the one who's in control. God is always over everything in this regard. And yet Satan is there, kind of like uh, one person compared it, one commentator compared it to the loyal opposition uh, in, the, in the, Her Majesty's or His Majesty's government where you have the different parties and you have to have the opposing party because they need their voice in, in the parliament and all this. And so uh, God uses obviously good things and God uses obviously bad things, situations but also individuals or persons to accomplish his will. And we think, well, doesn't that make God guilty then? Doesn't that make God somehow uh, liable for the bad things that happen in this world? No, no. And we'll get into that in just a moment, this ultimate cause versus uh, effective cause or, or secondary cause. God is right. God is holy. God is righteous. He only does what is good. He cannot lie. He cannot cause people to sin or tempt them to sin. He doesn't do that. But Satan does. He specializes in it. Satan is this one who, with the rest of the sons of God, came to stand before Yahweh. This idea of standing before Yahweh is not just you know, standing around, twiddling your thumbs, waiting for the next thing to happen. It is you have come, you have business to do with Yahweh. It is a presentation. You, you, pre- you present yourself as a soldier, even, if you don't mind that analogy, before your commanding officer, awaiting orders, giving a report, and asked for the report, you are the one who, who uh, is gets called upon to answer for your uh, actions or your observations in this life. And so they are standing before Yahweh. Notice, I, I said this earlier, and I said it perhaps out of, out of turn, that we are in the heavenly court. Does it say heaven here in this verse 6? It says they came to stand before Yahweh, but does it say heaven? No. Now we can assume and presume, and I think rightly so, that this is the heavenly court because Yahweh largely lives and dwells in heaven. He is the one who, that's his dwelling place. And we can say, well, is that heaven like you know, outer space? Is that the highest heaven? Solomon said, heaven, the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I built for your name? So Yahweh is the God of heaven. That heaven is outside of space, outside of time. He is the one who... who adequately fills that space and he has that dwelling there again i point that out most likely this is heaven but it says particularly specifically it's before yahweh and satan is also there you know there there's a a an event in is it first kings um where god is planning this overthrow of king ahab and how are we going to how are we going to lead him out into battle and all this kind of thing? It's, I think it's First Kings uh, four. I can't see it in my notes right now. Where he was conducting a not a survey necessarily, but he was talking. How you know, how are we going to do this? And various various sons of God chimed in. But there was a lying spirit who said, "I know how to do it. I'll I'll entice him and do this to him." And, and God says, "Okay, that'll work. Go do it." And it's almost like this scene here. Satan is that one, a lying spirit, a destroying, thieving, murderous spirit who is then sent on a mission approved, permitted by God himself. And we think, how in the world is it? How, what? How is this to be? Well, let's just follow the narrative and find out what is going on. We see this guy, Satan. Satan also came among them. The various commentaries that I've been consulting follow what's written in Hebrew, and that is to say, the Satan. The Satan did this, and the Satan did that. It's a little difficult to to do that. I don't, think, I don't think any of your translations have that. There were a few that did, but I don't think any that we use commonly in our congregation. Maybe you can surprise me and if you have a translation that says, the Satan also came among them. But the idea is it's not so much a name as it is a title. 
it, he is fulfilling a particular job description here in the royal court, the heavenly court. He is the adversary. He is, if you don't mind, not just the devil, devil's advocate, he is the devil himself, bearing an advocacy against whoever we're talking about, but ultimately against God, because everything Satan does is against God, against his anointed. He is the enemy. He is the prosecutor of God and the prosecutor of Job, but secondarily to Job. He is the one who challenges anything that God is about. He just wants to accuse, accuse, accuse. He's called the accuser of the brethren, right? And he has access at this point and throughout history, even to this day, access before God. Remember when Jesus said to Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Luke 22, I think that is. And what did, and kind of the response we would hope, Peter would say, well, you told him no, didn't you? Jesus said, I have prayed for you, that your faith remain firm. And when you have turned, which kind of indicates he's going to be shaken and fall, when you've turned, strengthen your brothers. So you see, even in that point, Satan has access. Where, how did he demand to sift you like wheat? Well, he came to the heavenly court and said, this is the thing and I'm going to do this. We see later, Revelation 12, when that's, that serpent, the dragon, that accuser, he's thrown down out of heaven, has no more access. It's done, Revelation 12. So right now, in this world, he has access. I've uh, appealed to this statement, and I couldn't find where he wrote it. And even I've mis- misapplied it to John Calvin. I, but I, apparently it is Martin Luther that said, the devil is God's devil. He is the one who accomplishes not his own will. Ultimately, he's accomplishing God's will, even in this context. Satan is only a tool uh, to proclaim God's glory and his sovereignty. So Satan also is there amidst the others. And here we have the first words that are spoken in verse 7. Yahweh is the one who speaks. Yahweh is the one who calls the meeting to order, who asks for a report from this guy, Satan. Hey, Satan, from where do you come? And you think, well, that's kind of an interesting question. Why does he ask that? Well, it's kind of a an open-ended question. What's your business here? What are you doing? What report do you have? What's going on? Where have you been spending your time? Where, is, where, is your, where has your attention been lately? Where do you come? From where do you come? He asked the same question, but a little differently in, in chapter 2, and we'll look at that when we get to it. But Yahweh is the one who says to Satan, and, and it's a question. So Satan is bound to answer, and he does. Satan answered Yahweh, and he said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Satan is responding to whatever God has said to him. And he says two things. I've been on the earth. Wait a minute. He's in heaven now. How does he have access between? Well, angels do. We have angels all over the place doing their different things. Uh, 1 Kings 22. If you want that reference, I just noticed it here. Uh, Ahab and the whole lying spirit thing. 1 Kings 22 is where that is. But Satan is here not wandrously, wandering aimlessly. That's how you say wondrous, wondrously. Wandering aimlessly on the... Just casually strolling. No, he's not doing that. He is looking for someone, as First Peter 5 eight says, looking for someone to bless. No, someone to devour, someone to destroy. It is a purposeful mission. It is looking for something, looking for someone, looking for someone in the right circumstances. Even, if you don't mind, when, when Satan left Jesus in Matthew 4, Luke 4, the great temptation, he, I think Luke is the one who says, he left, he, Satan left Jesus until an opportune time. Hmm. He's not given up. He still has more bullets in his arsenal, if you don't mind. He is looking for something. He's looking for someone, looking for some 
moment that his destructive influence can come to pass. He is walking around on it. He's just going to and fro. He's not bound to one place. Now, mind you, Satan is a created being. He has one, he's one spirit. He's not omnipotent, not omniscient, not omnipresent, which is to say he's not all-powerful, not all-knowing, and not all always present anywhere. He is somewhere. So for us to say, well, Satan is attacking me. Well, he might be, but more likely his minions, his, his, his helpers are, are doing nasty things. Uh, it, it would be unusual. And we do see it's rather unusual. In the end times, when Satan comes and indwells the Antichrist, whoa! Or when Satan came and indwelt Judas, whoa! I mean, that, that takes your breath away. What? This is such a high priority for Satan that he's coming to do the business himself? You know, the big man is here. Well, he is here in heaven, in the heavenly court, and saying, I've been down there, I've been looking around, and the question here in verse 8, have you set your heart upon my servant Job? We, we may think of it as, well, hey, have, have you seen, have you, have you met, Do you, are you aware of, kind of like God is indicating his attention toward this man Job. Maybe, maybe Satan has, encountered, has not encountered him before. No, I don't think that's, that's the import of, of God's word here. I think he says, hey, what's the big idea? You've set your heart. You've, you've focused in on Job. What's this about? Why have you been so consumed with him? Why are you so attentive to him? What's, what's the idea? Have you set your heart upon my servant? He, God is not so much bringing attention to him. He's saying you have already done or given your attention to him. You are the one who has been so consumed with, with who this this uh, Job person is, and he is, God is therefore saying, hey, what's your deal? What, what's your grief with this man Job? We've already established, right, these first five verses of the chapter said he's, he's these things, and God himself repeats it. There's no one like him on the earth. Now, that's a newer statement. It's kind of like what it said at verse 3, that man was the greatest of all the sons of the east, kind of localized. Now, God says, not just of the east, everybody, nobody is like this man Job. He is blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. He does everything right. He is good. So what's your grief with him? What Satan? What what are you after him for? God repeats as if we needed to have it repeated because God's word is in, in the first verse of this chapter. But God himself repeats his testimony. He affirms or confirms the statement that Job is without fault. He is blameless in all these different ways. And he says it to Satan. So what are you, what are you going after him for? He, he, he can't be uh, dissuaded. He can't be led, as, led astray from me or turned away from me. And Job's answer, verse 9, Satan answered Yahweh and said, and, and mind you when, you, when you look at this conversation, some people make a big deal of it and some other people don't. That is to say, there, there's no titles of respect here. I mean, God doesn't have to give any respect to Satan, but shouldn't Satan, pardon me, Shouldn't Satan have some measure of respect, like saying, sir, yes, sir, kind of thing? You see this in the military a lot, or you hear about it being said. He has nothing like that. He is just rude. He is boorish in the, in the negative sense. He is insolent. He's arrogant. He's proud. He's, he's just repugnant. Everything that God is, he hates. Just, he's so animated against him. He, and he, he starts accusing God. In fact, we often think that Satan is accusing Job. Well, Yes, but secondarily. Primarily, he's saying, it's your fault, God. Does Job fear God without cause? You've bought him off. You've bribed him. And the only reason Job is all these things is because you have 
protected him. You have blessed him. Everything he has, you have, you have uh, benefited to him because that's how you work. This is God, you have to buy off your followers. You have to bribe them. You have to entice them somehow. They wouldn't serve you unless you gave them all this stuff. And, and here's a test. And he goes on, on to say about that. What is absolutely ironic about this is that everything, even in this one question, everything that Joe, or excuse me, Satan accuses God of, Satan is guilty of. Satan gets his followers by bribery, lying, deceit, trickery, enticement, temptation. That's how he gets his people. There's no reason for us, created in God's image, to go after what Satan offers. That is evil. That is wickedness. Where do you end up? You end up sharing the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the destiny, and we have it written in Scripture. And for us to say, well, it'll be different with me, right? The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, it'll be different with me because I'm, I'm me, right? And they're them, and so I, I'll be fine. You will share in the inheritance that thing that is prepared for the devil and his angels. For Satan to get followers after him, he's got to lie. He's got to deceive. He's got to do that shifting, uh, you know, where's the coin or whatever the thing is, the, the cup, whatever, uh, moving the thing around. He has got to be so evil in his intents and thoughts. And so he accuses God of doing the very same thing that Satan does. Does Job fear God without cause? This idea of without cause has to say without giving or receiving compensation. Haven't you paid him? I mean, it's like the wages of righteousness is blessings and material stuff. All these camels and sheep and donkeys and all the stuff and all the kids and, and, and being just so wealthy you can't even, can, the land itself can't contain it. You have bought him off. You have given payment to him. You have uh, done things that, that are, set the precedent. Because you have blessed him and, and hedged him in on every side, well, of course he's going to follow you. I mean, who, what kind of idiot would not follow you? But he says, let's, let's test this out. Let's test it out. Again, Satan bribes, he entices people, he does these very things. Now, well, he, he does these very things from the very beginning, Genesis 3, 1 through 4. Satan is there in the garden. Of course, it's not called Satan there. He's called the serpent, more crafty than all the creatures that the Lord God has made. And yet he is there deceiving, asking questions, and even holding out the anticipation, hey, Eve, if you disobey God, that's not really disobeying because God is just jealous of his own glory. You will get so much. You will have knowledge. You will be like God. He's deceiving. He's wickedly uh, tricking her, enticing her to, to clutch that fruit for her own benefit. Not without cause. There's some remuneration, some payment that, that Satan anticipates or teases out in that conversation. When Jesus is with Satan in the mountain of, of or in the wilderness being tempted, one of those temptations it's either the second or third, depending on how you read it in Matthew and, Matthew and Luke. The devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you. Wait a minute. Does Job fear God without cause? Satan says, I'll give these things to you. Just fall down and worship me. What? Should we expect any logic from Satan, any kind of sense of remorse or conviction over his sin, or any sense of, wait a minute, I'm, I'm accusing, it's called projecting in this modern vernacular, accusing other people of the very same, that you're, same thing that you're doing, without conviction, without a knowledge of it, well, maybe a knowledge of it, but not a conviction of it. And so Satan is there, all these things I'll give you if you fall down and worship me, and Jesus himself says, no, get away from me. Same kind of language he used 
with Peter. Get away from me, Satan. And Matthew 16. Do you know that one of the one of the ways that sin is powerful is that it promises what it never gives and gives what it never promises. It promises what it never gives and gives what it never promises. In other words, this statement from my professor in in college. A lie, a deception, is powerful not because it is deceptive, but because it is delicious. In other words, it's not a, a credible promise. It's not. I, we don't really expect to have long life and joy and satisfaction. Maybe we kind of do, but but even if not, I'm going to go after it because it tastes good. It's not because it's convincing. It's not because it has the power of logic or rationality. Sin is deceptive because it is delicious. We desire what can come, what we think will come, as a result of our wickedness. And that's what Satan counts on. We are made for God. We are made for God's glory. Only God can fill us. Only God can satisfy the needs. And yet we, uh, I think it's, well, it's in Ecclesiastes, which verse is it? God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. And I often kid with my children about that. You've sought out, you know, everybody has their own devices, right? It's not what he's talking about. They've, they've, they've turned to the, to the right or to the left. They're, they've walked off the beaten path, away from God's true and righteous path. And, and they, God made men upright. But what do they do in chasing after these things? Because they want, they want, they want. In Ephesians 4, 19, they, Paul talks about those who have become callous. They, they've just totally given into their sin. They have given themselves over to sensuality, just living for what feels good, tastes good, all the, all the sensual stuff, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. They do all kinds of wickedness, but notice it says, with greediness. They're never satisfied. Never, ever satisfied. One translation, I forget which one it says, uh, they practice every kind of, of impurity with a continual lust for more. Just, Wow. And that's what Satan does. Okay, didn't turn out this time. You, you, you kind of got the run of the, of the deal this time with your, your wickedness, but next time it'll be different. Oh, it turned out bad this time. Well, next time it'll be different. And you're continually looking for that next and better experience. And that's what Satan holds out. And so what he, again, what he's accusing God of, he is just guilty, guilty, guilty about doing that for us. Does Job fear God? Because that's the ultimate thing. It's not about being blameless and upright. It's because I fear God both in the sense of dread, awesome dread before him, but also loving him, adoring him, celebrating everything that he is. Job fears God. He knows who God is, and therefore that affects his life. Job is not consumed with the stuff, and we'll see that at the end of chapter 1 when we get to it, uh, maybe even next week, that God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's not the stuff that makes me fear the Lord. It's him, who he is. And so Satan is, is wrong in this regard, but he presents a test here. Actually, verse 11 presents a test. He, he, he under, underscores the claim here in verse 10. Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? So you got, Satan is accusing God of protecting him, just per, uh, putting this hedge of protection, but also a hedge of, of confinement, uh, that you know, having a sheltered life is both a good thing and it can be a stifling thing, right? And Joe... Job is being accused of, you know, he, he's been protected from the real things of life. You know, if he were really out there in the world, he'd know that you're, you're not fair, you're not right, you're not good. 
and you just you you've protected him, you've you've bribed him into your stuff, and you've kept him safe from loss, from calamities, and and so obviously the, the, there's no reason that he should not fear you because you've done so all these things to him. You made a hedge about him, so his body, his his person himself, his house, which would include you know his people and and his his uh, children. And then all that he has, all the possessions he has, and he says this hedge is just all around. It, it is all encompassing. Satan accuses a God of doing. And notice again, you have blessed him, blessed the work of his hands. So his uh, his agricultural pursuits. Remember, he had all that five hundred oxen, teams of oxen, pairs of oxen, and the donkeys, and all these servants. And so agricultural pursuits, but also his possessions, which the livestock, his flocks, and and all these things. You have blessed him so that they, they all, the, the idea is that they almost, there's too much for the land even to contain. There's so many. Job is just full to burst him, if you don't mind the vernacular. And it, But it, the accusation is, even in verse 10, you did it, you've made a hedge, you have blessed him. The accusation against is against Job, yes, but it's ultimately against God. God, you're not doing right. You are a trickster. You are a deceiver. You, you, cause, you cause bribes. The only reason anybody follows after you, Satan alleges, is because you buy them off. And so we're going to see, okay, is this, is this real? Is this true? Verse 11 says, but send forth your hand, Satan says. Send forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. So he says, okay, here's the test. Here's the test. We want to test this hypothesis, this accusation. The only reason Job fears you is because he, you've just prospered him all over the place. Well, take that away. Send forth your hand. This isn't a... Uh, uh, remember how when um, the king put forward the royal scepter to Esther and she came, was allowed in. Hey, come on in. It's not that kind of a, a blessing. Don't send forth your hand that way. It is a, a hand of, of judgment when God describes the plagues that he sends upon Egypt, he is sending forth his hand in judgment, in, in destruction. When Abraham stretched out his hand, in Genesis 22, verse 10, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. This is business. This is serious business going on. And, uh, and then later in that context, the angel says, verse 12, do not stretch out your hand against the boy. In other words, don't, don't not just touch him or console him. Don't kill him. Don't strike him dead. Do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only one, from me. It's another one of these tests, by the way. Does Abraham fear God without cause? God promised to give him a son. Here's the son. Kill him. What? God's, God, you promised... Okay. Thankfully, Hebrews helps understand. The, the epistle, the sermon of Hebrews, helps us understand. Somehow God's got to raise him up, because God promised certain things through this man, Isaac. They haven't been fulfilled yet, and so... Somehow, I've got to obey what God says to me, but he's got to fulfill his promises, right? So God's going to have to figure it out. I'm going to do what I'm, I've been told and leave the results, leave the after stuff to God. Abraham did not withhold his own son, and Job also followed in that same path. We see, again, sending forth your hand is, is a rather negative thing. We saw it differently, though, in verse 4 and 5 when... I think it's the same in verse 4. He would send, Job would send, or excuse me, the brother would send and invite their sisters to eat and have that fellowship, that feast with them. And then Job in verse 5 would send and set them apart. So there's, an, there's a, a gentle idea of sending, inviting, come on forward. But then there's a, a sense of striking and, and causing a plague upon people. 
uh, destructive influence. It says, uh, touch. Satan says, touch all that he has. Again, not in a, in a comforting, consoling, uh, you know, God put his hand upon me and directed me where I was supposed to go. No, this is a touch of, of destruction. It is an aggressive, even a violent uh, strike against Job. So he, Satan, again, you remember what Jesus said about Satan, the, the false shepherd, the, high, the just, you know, I'm the good shepherd, I laid down my life for the sheep. But the destroyer, the one who comes, he has come to uh, steal and kill and destroy. That's what Satan does throughout history. Steal, kill, destroy. Repeat, steal and, and have a variation. Kill, destroy. It's, you know, he, he, he's not very creative. He's just so destructive. He kills. And that's his, that's his methodology. In that same verse, John 10, 10, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is that giver of life where Satan takes it. He is a wicked, absolutely wicked. And he's asking, demanding even, you, hey God, you send forth your hand. Touch all that he has. Be aggressive toward him. Touch him to punish him. Touch him to bring him low. I mean, just destroy him. And it's, it's like those two ladies who had the one son, with the one, two ladies had a son, the one died. And, and remember that situation with Solomon? What did the one lady whose son died want? Kill him. Cut the baby in half. Because that's, yeah, if I can't have my son, she can't have... That's the, that's the satanic deal. Just destroy and kill and just... Ugh, it's wickedness. Whereas God is a builder and we ought to use our, our words and our actions to build, not to destroy. There is one place in which God has sent forth his hand and touched in this kind of a smiting way. We read a verse in this context, but Isaiah 53 and verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him, here's the word, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. God touched Jesus. He smote him. He struck him to death, and Jesus died in our place. There is that idea. Did Jesus curse God because he was going to this cross? No, he said, May your will, not my will, may your will be done. Into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. And absolute dependence upon what God the Father was doing. Jesus was touched for our infirmities. Satan's conclusion, hey, God, if you were to do these things, uh, strike in a, in, a, in a judging kind of a sense and touch in a violent, aggressive kind of sense, ah, oh, no question. Surely this is what's going to happen. Job is going to rise up and curse you to your face. He is going to blaspheme you. He's going, all that fear that he had, all that bla- it's a show. It's a hypocrisy. The only reason he does it because you've bought him off. You've protected everything he has. And you take that away and guess what he's going to do? I am sure of it. I don't think maybe some translators and commentators would say that there was a wager that Satan was saying, you know, I'll bet you. No, I don't think there's anything like that. It's just an accusation. It's a foregone conclusion, kind of like a foregone conclusion that, that Satan has. That he's going to win someday. He's got God exactly where he wants them. Got, got him. He thinks in that last day, having spent a thousand years in an abyss, oh, got him this time. Isn't that, people have said it, the definition of insanity, trying the same thing and the same result, which is a negative. I'll, it's going to be different next time. No. His sureness, Satan's sureness, is on on test here. He will surely curse you to your face. Not the thing that Job was concerned his children were doing. Somehow they may have cursed God in their hearts. 
somehow in their, in their thoughts, maybe whatever. But Satan says, he's going to rise. He's going he's to stand right before you, just like Satan, right, is in the presence of Yahweh. He is going to bring blasphemy upon you. And as I think I mentioned last time, this word of cursed, verse 5, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. That same word could be translated blessed. Uh, blessed or cursed, same word, depending on the context. What are we talking about? There are different words for cursed. If, if the writer wanted to use a different word for cursed, it obviously means that. It could have been. But you can almost read it this way. That, okay, Job has this this reputation for blessing God and Satan says well if you touch him and smite him he'll, he'll bless you all right but it's kind of like a tongue-in-cheek no he's not going to bless you he's going to bring you down he's going to expose you God for the fake that you are which is kind of harsh things to say but that is what Satan did in the presence of God his attack Satan or excuse me Job is secondary in Satan's mind he is going after you know he's bringing out the big guns against the big guy taken God out himself. And we'll see how this, this plays out. But we see here in verse 12, I'm finishing here, Yahweh said to Satan, no, no, he didn't say that. Wait a minute, am I making that up? Wouldn't that have been nice? Well, that is end of story, right? But this whole thing is, is a setup. Remember I quoted my, my mentor, Dr. Doug Bookman. Uh, back in college, he was writing a, or researching and doing different things on the well, he was writing a paper that he wanted to title How Jesus Orchestrated His Death. And the different people that advising his, his thing said, well, wait a minute, that's kind of a harsh way. Jesus orchestrating his death, it kind of makes it kind of like he's in charge. And can you maybe change it to uh, the title to be uh, How uh, Jesus Was Involved in His Death? And Dr. Bookman said, well, I guess it would have been the same without him, right? his death, because he had to be there to die. But the point that he was making is, Jesus is in control. Everything that happened from Friday night to Friday morning, a week, Jesus was in control. Why did he stay in Bethany for Sabbath day? And why did the other people go on in Jerusalem that he was traveling with for those that time? All the drama that goes on, the questions going on, Jesus cleansing the temple, Jesus answering the questions and asking questions, and then Jesus secluding himself, and then having the... Everything Jesus did was to get the religious leaders to a point where they had to do the exact opposite of what they intended to do. They wanted to take Jesus secretly after the feast. And then people forget about him, be a done deal. But Jesus orchestrated his death by making them crucify him at the height of the feast in a public area, public crucifixion. Obviously, Jesus is in control of that thing. And so God here is in control of his situation. God is directing all these things, even calling the day and calling attention uh, to, to Satan's preoccupation with this man, Job. He says, look, behold, get this. Pay attention, Job, because, or Satan rather, because here's what I'm telling you. All that he has, which, whoa, go back to that catalog of, of, of children, but also the livestock and, and the servants and the reputation that he had, all that he has in your hand it's in your hand satan you are the agent of this thing i'm in charge and we this is a mystery to some regard this ultimate cause if it was an efficient or effective cause satan is the one who brings forth the destruction yes he's the one who kills steals kills and destroys god is giving him permission just like when jesus said satan has demanded to sift you like wheat permission satan had to have permission we think well wait a minute why 
why wouldn't God say no? Why wouldn't God protect us from every harm? And we would just have peaceful, happy lives. Because the testing of our faith produces endurance. Because God is right, whether we have or have not. Because God is righteous in the way that he deals with people. God is sufficient. God is the sufficient cause or basis of our reverence, of our piety, regardless of the trappings that are available to us. All the material blessings, all the children, all the reputation. All, forget about that. I mean, there are many songs about, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. Would you rather have Jesus? What if it were put to the test? Which is what Satan is accusing God. What if we put this to a test? And God says, okay, we'll see it. And it wasn't so much confidence in Job's performance. That's already been proven, right? He is blameless and upright, free and Lord. That's done. That's confirmed. The issue is, God, are you right? God, are you just? God, are you really worthy of people orienting their whole lives around you? And what's the big deal about you, Yahweh? Again, Satan is a deluded, wickedly crooked individual, never to be restored, always crooked, always bent away from God. And so this accusation is God's on trial, not Job. Send forth your hand, he says. Well, no, you, Satan, all that he has is in your hand only... And again, God is able to do this, and Satan must abide by it. It's not like, oh, I, didn't, I didn't hear that part of the order, and he goes off and just destroys everything, and Job included. No, he had to abide by that. Only do not send forth your hand toward him. Remember the accusation, part of the accusation, I know we need to be done, is that Satan accuses God of putting a hedge about him and his house and all that he has. Well, all his house and all that he has, that's going to be taken away here in just, I mean, one or four fell swoops, gone. But God says, don't touch him. Don't touch his body. Which sets us up for the next test. We've already dealt with, it's kind of separating, isolating the variables, if you don't mind, on the scientific mumbo-jumbo. We're, we're going to test this, and having tested that, now we can test this thing over here. Test the outside. Okay, Job, you know, as long as it doesn't touch him, skin for skin, we'll see that in chapter 2. That, well, Satan, or Job wasn't affected himself, it was just other stuff around him, so obviously he's, okay, let's Let's isolate that then and test that and see how it does he do when you do your worst, which Satan does here in chapter 2. So we see this, send forth your hand toward him. And what did Satan do? He went out from the presence of Yahweh. He had his orders. He had the conversation. He had his day in court. And he is just giddy with excitement. He is just hoping that, not just hoping, he, it's a done deal. Oh, just when's the right time to do this? Oh, I know when everybody... All the kids are in the oldest brother's house and all the flock, all the stuff. Oh, I mean, Satan is ready to do this. But he goes out at the command, at the behest, at the word of God, Yahweh, and does God's will. We can rest in God's sovereignty, his purpose. We must know these things. We must know this scene because it shows us that God is sovereign. He is good and nothing will thwart his supremacy over all. That's our confidence, even now. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful that your word is sufficient, and this this difficult treatment we see in, in Job 1 is hard to comprehend, hard to understand. How are you not the author of sin in this regard, the author of all the suffering that, that Job was about to go through, and yet realizing that you are good, and you are righteous, and you 
are working even things that we would consider evil and wicked and just wrong. You're working these things out to accomplish and to magnify your glory, your sovereignty, your wisdom. It's not that you're somehow uninformed or unaware or unable to do these things or somehow unloving. You didn't really care for Job. No, you are sovereign. You, you consider Job a friend, a servant, one who's so close to you. And yet, we often think when, when hard times touch us that somehow God doesn't care about us. He's turned his back on us and, and that he's not for us. No, you are with us always. Please help us to rest in you when things are good and things are bad. Again, humanly speaking, you are good and that is where we need to rest. Please help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.